0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, please turn them to Nehemiah 5, Nehemiah chapter 5. Today we continue our series through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and our sermon text this morning is uh, the entirety of chapter 5, so it's, it's Nehemiah 5. The context here, just to help us as we get started with reading the text, uh, is the people of God there were hard at work rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. You remember that from last week when the events of our passage uh, take place. So you're there, you're in Nehemiah 5, so these are the words of God. Now there arose a great outcry of the people. And of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money. For the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. This is Nehemiah speaking, verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? To prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interests. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. Verse 14, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes the king, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, There were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was the ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember, for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for how your word leads us, guides us, and trains us in righteousness. And Father, we ask you right now in these moments, we ask you to re-speak the truth of your word to our hearts. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, we welcome your Holy Spirit. By your Holy Spirit, illuminate your precious word to our hearts. And we ask you, teach us what it means to truly love one another sacrificially as we together labor side by side for your glory in the mission that you have called us to. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, and everyone said together, amen. Amen. So we've been in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah for a number of weeks now, and one of the things that you may have noticed is the prominence of the theme of mission. The return to exiles were on a God-given mission, first to rebuild the temple that was the book of Ezra Ezra and then to rebuild the walls that's the book of Nehemiah in all of this in all of this the ultimate end game the ultimate mission was the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham you'll recall from Genesis 15 God promised Abraham that through his seed his offspring his descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This promise, of course, pointed forward to the Christ. It pointed forward to the Messiah who was to come. Who would bring untold blessing to the nations. Which is, of course, fulfilled. First, through Christ, his life, death, Resurrection, ascension, but then, secondly, through the Great Commission. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations. And that's why we're here today. Because the blessing of Abraham, the promise to Abraham, has been fulfilled through Christ. And it continues to be fulfilled as the kingdom of God grows and expands and Jesus is gathering in the redeemed people of God before his return. So the promise of Abraham's fulfilled in Christ and then the Great Commission. Uh, I just want to invite you to consider, in all likelihood, had the events of Ezra and Nehemiah not happened, The exiles would have, in that case, remained in Babylon, been fully assimilated into the culture, and soon lost their distinctiveness and identity as God's people. Think about this. If that happened, what then of God's promise to Abraham? You may recall before the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 BC, which resulted in the exile, in the year 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire conquered the northern kingdom, which is Israel. Many of the Jews at that time in the northern kingdom were exiled to Assyria, various places in the Assyrian Empire. And the tragic story of those exiles is they assimilated into the culture, into the pagan culture. They intermarried with the surrounding pagan peoples, and they never came back. They never returned again. And some of you know they are popularly known as the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel. <laughs> if you want, you can, uh, you can Google Ten Lost Tribes of Israel, and you'll You'll come up with all sorts of theories of who their descendants are today. Um, It's kind of an interesting thing to do. I just ask, uh, wait till sometime after the service to distract yourself in that way. Um, I share that with you for this reason it's important as we go along here in Nehemiah that we understand, brothers and sisters, what was. At stake, If the returned exiles failed to reestablish themselves in Jerusalem and thereby maintain their distinct identity as the people of God, then we don't get to Christ who descended from the Jewish people either. You tracking with me? This was huge. This was important. And the rebuilding of the walls in particular was critical to the reestablishment of God's people in the land of promise. The walls were about national security. And without them, Israel would be vulnerable to attack and once again being conquered and subsumed into the surrounding pagan nations and cultures. So, Again, this is very important. You can see the gospel is in view in absolutely everything that is happening here. I share that with you also to point out, this effort to rebuild the walls, this was no mere human endeavor. This was no mere modern-day nation-building effort. Instead, this was a divinely initiated project. This was God's project to keep the redemptive plan of salvation on track. And you may recall, it was God himself who put it in Nehemiah's heart to lead this rebuilding effort. That's Nehemiah 2, verse 12. So this, here in Nehemiah, was God's people. This was God's people seeking to accomplish God's mission in God's strength. And one common theme in both the Old and New Testaments uh, and in church history for that matter is that two things regularly pose an imminent threat to the success of God's mission. Okay, If you study the Old Testament, study the New, study church history, you'll notice That two things regularly pose a threat to the success of God's mission. The first is outside opposition, external opposition. And the second is internal strife. So last week, we saw in chapter 4, Nehemiah and company were opposed by powerful outside forces. Regional governing authorities, Sanballat and Tobias, schemed uh, to start an armed war. How about that for opposition? They schemed to start an armed war against the people in order to prevent these walls from being rebuilt, in order to prevent the mission from moving forward. This was an evil plot. J.I. Packer points out in his book, Passion for Faithfulness, that it actually was a demonically inspired plot to destroy the mission. And I think that he is correct. But thankfully, the plot of these evil men was thwarted. Through prayer and excellent leadership on Nehemiah's part, the mission progressed. Sword in one hand, trowel in the other, the people worked prayerfully. <laughs> they worked diligently to rebuild the walls. And that, was, and that was last week. Here in our passage today, here in chapter 5, what we see is that internal strife, strife within the community, created a major crisis, a major crisis that threatened to sabotage the mission. So, two major forces threaten in Scripture, in church history, to undermine the mission of God. Outside opposition, internal strife. Here we've got, we're looking at the internal strife side of things. And from this crisis situation that we have here, Chapter 5, we gain valuable insight into the kinds of attitudes and actions that both foster kingdom building and gospel mission on the one hand, and also insight into those kinds of attitudes and actions that tend to quench gospel mission. And I think you'll see as we go through here, there is much that we can learn that can help us, that can aid us, that can pastor us in our mission to proclaim Christ and to do what God has called us to. Proclaim Christ and build this church, this particular local church. That's our little part in the mission together. Nehemiah, in many respects, many scholars have noted this um, because you're always trying to apply these Old Testament passages uh, in the New Covenant. Many scholars note that Nehemiah, in many respects, is a manual on church building. And by that, I don't mean physical structure. I mean the body of believers that is the local church. So um, it applies to us very similarly to, for example, the book of Acts. So we should read it that way. This is how the gospel goes forward and how the church is built. So, in the remainder of our time, I'm going to give an overview of the passage and then draw out some uh, relevant applications and lessons for church building, for m- the mission of building the church. So, let's now consider a survey of the text. And keep your Bibles open because I'll just be referencing different... Verses as we go through. As the people continued on in the good work of rebuilding walls in the face of opposition, in verses one to five, as I mentioned, we see that a conflict began to emerge internally among them. The conflict in this particular situation was between two parties. It was between the wealthy and the not so wealthy. It was between the rich and the poor to middle class. And the source of their, their conflict was the rich were oppressing. They were taking advantage of and refusing to help their Jewish kinsmen who were in an incredibly uh, bad spot, incredibly de- desperate situation financially. As a result of this, verse 1, please just glance down there. We, we read right at the outset of our text, there arose a great outcry of the people <laughs> and their wives against their Jewish Brothers, so you see right there at the beginning, conflict, it's right there. And given the circumstances, this outcry was most understandable. In verse 2, we see some families literally did not have enough food to eat. They, could, they, they were really struggling. They couldn't put food on the table. These were the truly poor in the land. They appear to not have owned land and would have lived essentially one paycheck to another presumably because they were working on the walls as unpaid volunteers there's no record that they were paid for this work they had so they're not working they're not going to their day jobs and so they have no money to now buy food in verse 3 Nehemiah introduces us to a second group so that's the first group the really super poor of the land he introduces us to a second group of people those who had mortgaged their properties because they needed the cash they needed the cash from their more wealthy kinsmen to purchase food And then to continue their work of cultivating the land. There was still another group, a third group, verse 4, who couldn't afford to pay their taxes. So the tax bill comes from the Persian IRS. Uh, They can't afford to pay their tax bill. And so they actually take out a loan from their wealthy brothers. And they borrow to pay Artaxerxes, his money, for taxes. So... As, as we see here right in these opening verses, many um, many Israelites of lesser means, again, poor to middle class sort of people, were in debt to their Jewish brothers. And in violation of the Mosaic law, the wealthy charged interest, that's verse 7, to their brothers on these loans. According to the law of Moses, issuing a loan was not wrong. However, usury was. The practice of usury you probably know it's the, the practice of exacting interest on loans. And that practice of usury, um, it violated the law of God. That was against the law of God. And that's Deuteronomy twenty three nineteen to 20, if you want to look that up at some point. The situation was apparently so bad that some of the people had begun to sell their children into, de- into temporary debt slavery. That's verse 5. Just in order to make the payments on their loans and afford, avoid uh, foreclosure. Their hope in doing so was to at least have a fighting chance at being able to cultivate their land and eventually have sufficient funds to redeem, redeem their children back out of slavery. Um, it, this seems like a crazy thing to do, yet if you just try to understand where they're coming from, this in their minds was likely better than the immediate... Than, than just immediate foreclosure on the loans and then resulting debt slavery for the whole family anyway. So they're just trying to keep their heads above above water and get any kind of cash to keep the business going so they can have some hope of survival. And according to the law of Moses, you know, the year of Jubilee happened every 50 years where you could be all all those who were under debt slavery would be released. But, I mean, you could be in slavery for, it could be a long time, depending on where that year of Jubilee came before you could be released. You can see, um, you, you, you kind of under, oh, one other thing here. You see in verse 3, there's a famine going on. In the middle of this, there's a famine, which made the situation even even worse. So any crops they would have had, it would have been minimal, so it was this oppressive and horrible situation that, again, verse 1, caused a great outcry of the people. And in verse 6, we read Nehemiah's response to this outcry. You can look there. It says, you see it, don't you? He was very angry. Another translation um, that I enjoy at times, the Berean Standard Bible, BSB, it says that he was extremely angry. Nehemiah is extremely angry. I don't think this was sinful anger. I think this was righteous anger or what's going on. Nehemiah was righteously angry, and he was angry in particular with the exacting of interest, the usury that was taking place in violation of God's law. And from that place of righteous, godly anger, he sought to bring leadership. He sought to bring leadership. He sought to bring reformation. So we see in verses 7 to 11, Nehemiah rebuked the rich for their usury and then urged them to both give back to the poor the interest that they had taken from them and then actually to release them entirely entirely from their debt. So this really is Incredible. It's incredible. Nehemiah says to the wealthy, uh, "Return all the interest that you took from these people, and then not only that, give them a zero balance on their loan. Okay? Return all the interest on the credit card, but don't just return all the interest on the credit card. Cut them a check for that. Wipe out the whole, wipe out the whole debt that they owed." He's exhorting his brothers to go well beyond the requirement of the law to not charge interest and given the present circumstances to give generally, excuse me, generously to their brothers in need. In verse 9, you'll notice he points out that a lot is at stake here. Their testimony to the surrounding pagan culture, the secular culture, is at stake. He says essentially... To try to motivate them to do this, to be generous in this way. He says, if we fail in this mission of rebuilding the walls due to infighting and our inability to love and care for our own, care for one another, then we will be a mockery. We will be a mockery to the nations around us when they see this project collapse because we, as God's people, can't get along. And it's ultimately a mockery to Yahweh. This is why he seeks to motivate them by the fear of the Lord. Notice verse 10, Nehemiah himself released those who were in debt to him. So Nehemiah is involved. It does not appear that he himself violated God's law by charging interest. So there's no indication in the text that Nehemiah charged interest, but he did. He was giving loans, so he, which was legal to do. So Nehemiah, he's an amazing leader. This is an amazing study in leadership to study. That's what Packer does in a passion for faithfulness. Uh, He leads by example here by showing generosity to his debtors. Verses 12 and 13, the people swore before the priests to do as Nehemiah had exhorted them to do. And they did, in fact, follow through with their commitment. They repented That word's not used there, but that's what happened. They turned from what they did. They repented of their usury and released their brothers from their debts. Then in verses 14 to 19, we see that around this time, Nehemiah was officially put in charge of the region as the regional governor by the Persian king Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah refused the food allowance that was due to him because Why? Because the taxation burden would have been too heavy on the people. Furthermore, it appears in verse 17, he took responsibility to feed 150 of the people out of his own pocket. So again, there you have Nehemiah leading leading the charge, and he's doing so by example. He's sacrificing personally for the good of the people by not taking the food allowance that was owed him. Not taking that part of his paycheck that was due him. Meanwhile, verse 16, we see that the work on the walls proceeded. And as we read in chapter 6, which is next week, we discover that all this worked. Nehemiah's leadership worked. The effect of the repentance was there. The walls were miraculously rebuilt. So the internal strife was overcome and the project. God's mission was completed. So that's an overview of the text. Um, I now want to offer you two key lessons that we can draw from it. The first one that I see here is effective mission requires sacrificial, brotherly love. I think it's... that probably jumps out to you too in looking at this. Effective mission requires sacrificial brotherly love. While from a divine perspective, from the perspective of God's sovereignty, absolutely nothing can stop God's mission from advancing, it is critical as God's people, and I want to use that, I, I mean that, I think it's critical. It's critical as God's people that we live with an ongoing, lively awareness that our own effectiveness... For the cause of Jesus Christ and our own effectiveness in building Christ's church is directly linked to how well we as God's people love one another. There is a huge amount at stake in how people in local churches relate to one another. We should make no mistake, the failure here on the part of the rich in our text... Among other things it was a failure of love. Their main concern was clearly not the well-being and welfare of their brothers and their co-laborers instead their main concern was their main concern was padding their own savings accounts their own IRAs so to speak. And the direct consequence of their selfishness as we see in this narrative was crisis. The direct consequence was conflict and chaos. The direct conf- consequence of their greed and their selfishness was mission on the brink of complete failure. And thankfully, Nehemiah heroically and boldly led the rich in our story to repent and to turn from their selfishness and from their greed and from their lack of love. They heeded his exhortation, and they began to demonstrate. We saw that at the end of the text. Sacrificial love, and actually lavish generosity. No credit card bill anymore. Zero balance. They, in the end, did show generosity and love to their fellow Jews in need. And the result of that was the situation completely turned around. The mission proceeded and was completed. So on the one hand, you see what's the consequence of their selfishness. Well, it's chaos. What was the consequence of their love? Rebuilt walls. Incredible contrast right there. So as we consider together this event and its application to our lives here in the 21st century, it's very important that none of us miss the connection here, the connection between the advance of God's kingdom mission, on one hand, and God's people modeling Christ-like love. we got to get this and understand it and let it sink into our hearts. In our story, and more generally in Scripture, you simply cannot separate those two ideas. They are inseparably linked. In both the Old and New Testaments, love facilitates and fosters mission. Love breathes life into mission. In stark contrast, selfishness in its various expressions and forms subverts and sabotages mission. Love unifies Love propels forward. Selfishness, selfish ambition, self-promotion, self-concern, those things divide. Selfishness subverts the mission. One of the most effective ways to ruin a local church is for church leaders and or members to yield themselves to selfishness. Where the church, where the local church, becomes more about what I am getting out of it than how I can give sacrificially for the advance of the gospel and the cause of Christ. You have mission. You get mission failure every time in that case. It is noteworthy that in Acts 2 that the early church grew rapidly within the context of the members of the Jerusalem church Selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Don't you find the example of the early church compelling? Wow. That's how they lived. It's no wonder the gospel moved forward with such power. This refrain is spoken of again in Acts 4 where Luke says... Again, within the context of a, a growing church, he says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So there's, there's unity there. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. <laughs> but they had everything in common. That's the spirit of the New Testament church. doesn't mean we don't own private property, but that hold everything before the Lord. Lord, this this isn't mine. This is yours. Our homes, our money, our finances, our time, we hold it before the Lord. It's yours. I'm going to use it for the good of my brothers and sisters and the cause of Christ. The lesson for us today, I, I think, is this. For the sake of Christ's mission through his church, Every Christian and every Christian family must endeavor to both be on guard against selfishness in its various forms and to cultivate Christ-like love for and generosity to the saints. I'm getting that from the text. That There are two sides. Okay? Every Christian, every Christian family, cultivate Christ-like love towards the brethren, towards the saints. And where selfishness is there, I'm not living that way. I'm going to seek to put it to death and live for the Lord. Selfishness is a sin. I know this from experience. Uh, (laughs) You may as well. It's a sin that's often very subtle. Yet due to the reality of the flesh and remaining sin, it is something that we all deal with. I wish we didn't. I wish I could say selfishness is not a problem for me, but it is. Selfishness is a problem, and it's a problem for you too, because you have remaining sin as well. We have the Holy Spirit, regenerated hearts, born again from above, praise God. <laughs> the flesh is still there until we see the Lord and have <laughs> redeemed bodies. Um, in light of that, I, you know, I wish we didn't have selfishness. We do, and I think it's just best to be honest about it, to be honest about it so that we can deal with it, and so that we don't... F- feel as much uh, the way selfishness can undermine the mission of God. It was for good reason that the Apostle Paul exhorted the Philippians and all Christians. You know this text well. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, Philippians 2, 4. It's good for me. It's good for us to be clear. Paul said each of you to the Philippians. By the way, they were a very godly church, the Philippians. It's good for us to be clear. Paul said, each of you, because each one of us needs to hear this exhortation. <laughs> In light of this, as an application of our story today, it would be wise and humble and I think very Christ-like for every person and every family here to consider this. If we're humble and we want to allow the text to have its effect on us, I think we should consider, are there ways I or we as a family can be selfish? Selfish? And our use of time or money that may be hindering the mission, the building of God's church. Are there ways I or we as a family can be selfish in our use of time or money that may be hindering the mission or the building of God's church? Or to turn the question in a more positive direction, we might ask, are there ways we can be giving of ourselves in ministry to and love for others that we presently are not that could serve to advance the mission? and to build the church. And for married couples, husbands, again, we want to lead our families in the application of the word. I just encourage you to have a conversation with your spouse sometime soon. Lead them in just prayerfully in a discussion of of this. Um, Again, for the cause of Christ. How are we doing with loving one another and having a humble attitude with that? And that said, I do want to take this opportunity to really hopefully encourage us and encourage you. I, as one of your pastors, um, see countless ways you show generous, sacrificial love towards one another and our church. Countless ways. If we had time, we could parade testimony after testimony right up here onto this stage of how many here have experienced the love and the generosity of the saints In this congregation. And maybe we should just do that sometime, just not to celebrate ourselves, right? But to glorify God and His grace. Just have a time of sharing where individuals share about how the love of this body and this community has made a difference in your walk with Christ and, and in your life. I think that could be a very wonderful thing to do. Um, Your sacrificial service to our church and love for one another is God's grace to our local church. And it is, without question, a mark of the Holy Spirit's work in our midst. How will they know if they are my disciples, Jesus said, that they what? Love one another. And you can't be part of this church for a few months without seeing this is a body of believers that there is wonderful love, and I do want to celebrate that grace, and we should celebrate it and give honor to the Lord. Even so, even so, the Apostle Paul's exhortation to the Thessalonians on this matter is extremely appropriate and timely. He writes, now concerning love of the brothers, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brothers who are in all Macedonia. But notice what he says to this church, to these people who are already loving one another well. He says, but we urge you brothers to excel still more. (laughs) That's such a gospel and biblical approach to the Christian life. We celebrate grace. Yes, there is love in our church. We do love one another. But have we arrived? Are we all, am I as loving as I could be? No way. I've got tons of room to grow. We all have tons of room to grow in these things. And so we come before the Lord humbly and invite His Spirit to press us forward so that we can excel, excel still more. May the Holy Spirit help us to do that. There's as much joy and love as this community of faith, our community of faith, has experienced. I just want to hold out for us the best as He's yet to come. Dear brothers and sisters, the Lord has more generosity and love and giving and caring for each other and more family life, building us together so that sense sense of family is even stronger. He's got more for us in the days ahead. Um, As we're humble, it requires humility and allowing the Lord to convict us and to press us forward. All right. Second lesson I want to draw out here. Effective mission requires us to seek first God's kingdom. So, one clear problem in our text was that the people failed to prioritize love for the brothers and sisters. So I hope you see that problem up front. It's evident. Another related failure, and I've alluded to this already, was that the mission itself had taken a back seat for the rich to the priority of pursuing personal wealth. Okay? The mission of God... The rebuilding of the walls had taken a back seat. It's back there to the priority of pursuing personal wealth. Just consider, if the mission was really their number one priority, if these wealthy people, they would have set their greed aside, wouldn't they? And have sought to do all that they could to bolster and strengthen the workers on whom this mission of rebuilding the temple walls depended. Instead, before Nehemiah intervened and boldly rebuked them, as we've seen, they they liberally took advantage of the poor among them for their own financial and material gain. Their attitude and mindset was, hey, a deal is a deal. You sign the contract. A contract is a contract. So, you know, just think of it. That guy over on the south wall? Yeah, I see him sweating here on the walls day after day. I know he's working on it. And I feel bad. You know, I really do. I feel bad that he's struggling to make ends meet and, and feed his family, but he still owes me his monthly payment. A deal is a deal. And you know what? He better, he better get it to me soon or you know what? His, I'm going confiscate, to confiscate the collateral, take his land. This is the kind of thing... That was happening. In this way, I trust you see that their lack of love for their brothers was in part a function of their lack of true, deep, heartfelt concern for the mission of God. Again, just consider if God's mission really was their number one priority, they would have said, they would have looked, looked over and seen that guy laboring on the south wall and said... I see my brother. He's sweating. He's here every day working on these walls, and I'm going to happily do all I can to help him out. Why? Well, for the glory of God, we got to get these walls built, and my brother is essential to that happening. And I know he isn't—he isn't taking a paid time off. He's not getting paid for this. And so, what am I going to do? I'm going to be loving and generous. And I'm going to make sure his kids don't miss him. Here. And you know what else? He can forget. That monthly payment, he can forget it. Why? Hear the heartbeat of this. The glory of God. The rebuilding of the walls. And ultimately, as I said at the beginning, the gospel, God's promise to Abraham, was at stake. You know, that kind of attitude that looks over at the brother on the wall and sees him working hard, yet he can't pay his bills, and says... I'm going to help. That's true Christianity. That's New Testament Christianity. And to their shame, that's obviously not what the rich in our story were doing at the beginning. Instead, they were willing to put in jeopardy the entire mission. They were willing to do that for their own financial gain. And they were willing to potentially expose Israel and Israel's God to the taunts of the nations that infighting and consequent failure on this endeavor would produce. So on the priority list, in the way that they were acting, okay, functionally, for the rich, where was financial prosperity on their priority list? I bet you if you asked them, hey, what's your first priority, they would have written down on a card, my first priority is the building of the wall. Okay? So I'm not asking on paper what was their priority number one priority but what functionally in reality was, was, their, was their priority and where was financial prosperity for them it was way up there that, it was way up there uh, it was ultimate even you could say idolatrous and where was building the walls well somewhere right I don't know where um, they, but they were there They were building the walls, so it was somewhere on the list. This story serves as a sobering reminder that it is entirely possible for a person, for a believer, to be engaged in God's mission. And yet, the mission to not grip their hearts and be their number one priority and be their number one priority. Passion. In Matthew 6, Jesus famously said, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. On this verse, Dr. D.A. Carson, one of my favorite commentators, my favorite commentator on the book of Matthew, he writes, This verse makes it clear that Jesus' disciples are not simply to refrain from the pursuit of temporal things as their primary goal in order to differentiate themselves from pagans. Hear this. (laughs) Instead, they are to replace such pursuits with goals of far greater significance. To seek first the kingdom is to desire above all to enter into, submit to, and participate in spreading the news of the saving reign of God, the messianic kingdom already inaugurated by Jesus. I've got to tell you, the part in that quote that gets me, that convicts me every time I read it, it's above all. Above all. As a disciple of Jesus, my desire above all must be to enter into the saving reign of Jesus. My desire must be, above all, to submit myself to the saving reign of Jesus. And then also to participate in the spreading of the good news of the saving reign of Jesus Christ to other people. That's what Jesus, who I claim is my Lord and Master, requires of Chris Patton, the Christian. That's what he requires of me. It is an imperative. It is a command. My number one priority above all, above all, has to be this seek first. Do I live up to that standard? No, 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 no. Is it what Jesus requires of me? It is. It is. My Savior who died for me, our Savior who died for us, who loves us, it's what he requires. According to Jesus, my bank account balance cannot be number one. What does he say in this same passage in Matthew 6? No one can serve two masters. So wise budgeting, yes, but the believer cannot serve God and money. And I do think giving a tithe, giving 10% of one's income to the work of the Lord is a good litmus test for us on that point. My own ease and comfort and my family's ease and comfort can't be my number one priority, according to Jesus. Take up your cross and follow me. That's not easy. Take up, we follow a crucified Savior and he who took up his cross on the way to Golgotha. He tells me to take up my cross. Seek first, Jesus says, only Christ and his kingdom can be number one. And for me. That's what he calls me to. It's what he calls my family to. Husbands, I want to just address you again. We're called to lead our families in this. We're called to model it ourselves and then to lead our families to know what it means. To seek first the kingdom of the Lord Jesus who gave everything for us. Thank God for the cross. I fall short of this every day. Thank God for the forgiveness that is available to me through Jesus, and for the many ways I have fallen short in seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Aren't you thankful for the gospel today? He's been so kind. Thank God also that for the Holy Spirit. We rejoice in forgiveness, but we thank God also for the Holy Spirit who empowers us. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. Aren't you great for the Holy Spirit, too? He empowers us. We lift our hands to him and say, God, I I don't do so good at this. (laughs) Please forgive me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me not be so selfish. Help me to love others. Help me to give my all for the kingdom. What does he delight to do? Give us his Spirit. Fill us and help us to do just that. Well, let's bring this home, and the band can join me on the stage. Brothers and sisters, the events in our story happened a very long time ago, somewhere around 2,500 years ago. Even so, I want to remind you, there are still walls to be built today. The building project, as it were, that God has called us to in the New Covenant era is not building city walls. Instead, it is church building Wall building, kingdom building, and the New Covenant era is primarily, not exclusively, but primarily local church building. Jesus himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. That's what Christ is building right now. Following the ascension of Christ, the story of the New Testament is the advance of the gospel primarily through churches that planted new churches. And the epistles were written specifically to strengthen and build particular local churches. So in the new covenant era, we join our Savior in wall building, in building Christ's church, as we seek first God's kingdom and proclaim Christ together, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily in the context of the local church we engage in wall building as we seek first god's kingdom and proclaim christ together so i want to remind us as we wrap up here grace community church we are not a church that is merely a gathering of believers we aren't just a meeting for all of us to come to We are a group of wall builders. I want to remind you of that. You are a wall builder today. I am a wall builder. And God calls us to labor side by side together for the advance of the gospel. That's what our church is about. And for the cause of Christ. So by God's grace and in his power and in his strength, I want to encourage all of us. Let's keep loving one another. You love well, let's love better. Let's excel still more. Let's love one another. Keep loving one another and keep seeking first God's kingdom together. For this reason, as the psalmist said, not to us, not to us, but to your name be all the glory. I know you, and one thing I know about you is you love Jesus, and you want to see him glorified. May God help us to do that together. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We do thank you for how your word inspires us to live for you. Father, we pray that you would help us to do just that. Help us to seek first your kingdom. Help us to faithfully build walls together and help us to love one another well for your glory and for your name's sake. We do this all in dependence upon you. Lord, we say, all glory be to you. This is your endeavor, and we're joining you in it. We pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Let's stand together.